They say that farm-raised salmon is actually the dirtiest food that you could eat. These pens that the fish are in, they feed them soybean oil. They feed them uh, corn. Uh, just, just disgusting. Welcome to Wellness, the ultimate guide to unlocking your full human potential through biohacking. I'm your host, Ashley Daly. I'm a former personal trainer, Pilates instructor, and nutrition expert who holds a degree in kinesiology. I'm here to guide and support you in elevating the quality of your life. Before we jump into today's show, I wanted to remind you of a critical component that helps support this podcast, which is to subscribe and leave a review. It helps support my podcasts and bring epic guests to the show. On today's show... I'm speaking with one of the pioneers in America who is leading the way in a raw milk movement, along with promoting nutrients from real whole foods, including organ meats. Today, I'm speaking with Sally Felon Morell. Sally is the founding president of the Weston A. Price Foundation, a nonprofit nutrition education foundation, which we'll dive into on the show. You'll also learn about the campaign for real milk and about the four books she's written. She and her husband, Jeffrey Morrell, are owners of P.A. Bowen Farmstead in Southern Maryland, which produces raw cheese and milk from pastured cows, pastured meats, and grass-fed poultry and eggs. Welcome to the show, Sally Fallon Morrell. Thank you for joining us. You're the president of the Weston A. Price Foundation. And I feel like my listeners, maybe at least half of them, know what it is. But for those that don't, can you give them an overview of what your foundation is? So we founded uh, the Weston A. Price Foundation in 1999 to disseminate information about his work and also to provide accurate information on diet and nutrition. And we like to say our goal is to return nutrient-dense foods to American tables. We have a special emphasis on healthy babies and children, how to eat during pregnancy. We also uh, promote raw milk, and we've had a very active raw milk campaign over the last 25 years. Thank you for that. I'm going to jump right into where you led me in, which is the raw milk. Okay. So can you walk our listeners through the method of pasteurization and what essentially happens to food before they hit a grocery store? Okay. Pasteurization is, today, it's the rapid heating of milk from whatever temperature it is to 230 degrees centigrade, which is above the boiling point. It's rushed past superheated plates. We now know what happens to the proteins in milk when you do this to it. They're, they are basically denatured and rendered highly allergenic. And when you feed any kind of processed milk, even freeze-dried milk, to rats, they develop problems in the spleen, the blood, and the brain. They have a reduced capacity for memory and reduced learning ability. That's in every glass of pasteurized milk. It's in the milk we give our school kids. It's in reconstituted milk. And Sad thing is, we're applying all these terrible technologies to our to nature's most perfect food. When we have the technology today to get safe raw milk to every person, every growing child in this country, so that's what we need to do. And we just we're celebrating a passage of a raw milk bill in Iowa. It just happened a few days ago. We also got a. a Graded bill passed in Georgia. In Georgia, raw milk was was labeled pet consumption, and the dairy farmers themselves came to the legislature and asked for raw milk for human consumption because they were going out of business selling to the pasteurizing plants. The farmers today who are doing the conventional system get this just about the same price they got for their milk in World War II. And that's why they're going out of business, because they just can't, it's just not sustainable. So walk me through the benefits of eating raw milk, raw butter, raw cheese, just raw foods in general. Yeah, raw milk is got everything in it for the growth of babies, right? It's got every vitamin, every mineral. It's a probiotic food. It's got all the proteins. When you pasteurize, 
the all these nutrients become much more difficult to assimilate because you kill the enzymes. See, the reason raw milk is such a wonderful food is that every vitamin mineral has a special enzyme that ensures 100% assimilation. And they're all killed by pasteurization. So the calcium's still there. You can still analyze it and see the calcium and the iron and everything. And so that lets the government say the nutrient value is the same between raw and pasteurized milk. And that's yeah, technically correct, but the nutrients aren't there for us. We can't absorb them. And the milk is, becomes hard to digest and highly allergenic when we pasteurize. And this is new science. We didn't know this 40 years ago. And so 40 years ago, people thought that all germs were bad. We have a completely new paradigm, and we need to apply this new paradigm to, to milk. And it is being applied. Tell me about the benefits of pasture-raised cows versus cows in a commercial lot. Yeah, okay. So one of the key teachings of Dr. Price is that good health depends on high levels of nutrients in our food, and particularly what he called the fat-soluble activators, vitamins A, D, and K. And when we have our animals on pasture, our cows, our chickens, pigs in the woods and whatever, uh, we maximize these three critical nutrients. For example, vitamin A will be much higher in butter from pasture-fed cows. So vitamin D will be much higher in the egg yolks from chickens raised outside in the sunlight. This is why we are so keen on pasture-raised livestock. Plus, it's cleaner, it's more natural, the, the cows are healthier, they live longer. You are not giving them antibiotics, you're not giving them, you know, all kinds of drugs and chemicals. Couldn't agree more, and I don't know who likes butter more, me or you. I... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I watched a few of your videos and yeah. I listened to you on other podcasts talk yeah. about butter. And I'm like, we're the same. I probably go through a block of butter once a week minimum. Well, and well, I, my husband and I go through a block of butter every two days. Okay. <laughs> okay. You like butter more. <laughs> I heard you describe that butter is a superfood for the thyroid. Yeah. So there's three things in butter that make it an ideal food for the thyroid gland. One is vitamin A. And butter is our, really our best source of vitamin A in the modern diet. And there's more vitamin A in pasture-fed butter. And your thyroid gland cannot make thyroid hormones without vitamin A. It just absolutely cannot make them. So that's one reason. Another is that butter can be a really good source of iodine. The, um, if the cows are within 60 miles of the ocean, there will be more iodine in the butter. But it's in all butter, even in the in the mountains and stuff. In fact, I had someone tell me that their mother grew up in a village in Romania and she didn't like butter. Everybody else ate butter, but she didn't like it. And she developed a goiter and she was the only person in the village who had a thyroid problem. So butter really does pr protect the thyroid. Now, the third thing in butter is butyric acid. It's unique to butter. And we do make butyric acid in the colon from the breakdown of high fiber foods, but uh, the receptors for thyroid hormone need butyric acid. So it's got three things in it that just make it the perfect food for thyroid function. And as we have stopped eating butter in this country, you know, thyroid disease has gone through the roof. And tell me why you're not a proponent of margarine or butter spreads. Oh, yeah. They're all made out of industrial seed oils, which are very toxic. They're just extremely toxic. They are broken down and they break down into little molecules called aldehydes. And you might think of formaldehyde. Why are the undertakers noticing they don't need to use as much formaldehyde anymore? It's because people are already pickled by eating industrial seed oils. A lot of them are made out of soybean oil and soybean oil is extremely high in estrogens. There's as much estrogen in a tablespoon of soybean oil as there is in a birth control pill. So that's a, another reason to avoid them. Can you walk through some of those truths and myths of soy? Back in the early 2000s, there was a big push for soy, and it was supposed to be this miracle food and wonderful protein and so forth. Bloom is off the rose, and particularly because of the work we've done. 
So soy is, first of all, extremely hard to digest. It has protease inhibitors in it that block your pancreas from making what it needs in hormones and enzymes. It's very high in oxalic acid, so it causes kidney stones and all different types of stones. It is a thyroid depressor. It is a goitrogen, and it is full of estrogen. So we uh, work with prisoners. So Americans are avoiding soy. They pretty much know it's toxic. So the industry didn't see the kind of growth that they expected. And so now the people who get soy are prisoners, nursing homes, school lunches. And we are in contact with a lot of prisoners who are on the soy diet. And what happens is, first of all, they develop terrible digestive problems. A lot of them develop stones not just in the kidneys, but in other places. They grow breasts, and they get thyroid cancer, either thyroid cancer or colon cancer. And it's just horrendous. We have this experiment going on in the prisons. We need a good lawyer to make this stop because it's very obvious what's happening when they get a soy diet. I've also heard it's one of the highly most GMO sprayed crops. Yes, definitely. And lots of Roundup, lots of glyphosate. That'll cause all sorts of problems, too. I've heard you very compassionately say that the Weston A. Price Foundation is here for people when they want to find it and that you're never pushing your views of nutrition on people, which I really enjoy because I feel like people go through their own journey and then decide what works for them. And hopefully a lot of the times it comes back to that nutrients-dense food. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on why being vegan is not considered an optimal lifestyle. Well, it, it results in nutrient deficiencies. Deficiencies in vitamins A, D, and K, calcium, phosphorus, zinc, iron, DHA, arachidonic acid, uh, full protein, especially lysine and glycine. Uh, it's a very risky diet. and uh, we are not vegetarian animals. We are omnivores. We are built to consume both plants and animals. We have a stomach that produces hydrochloric acid. The only purpose of the human stomach is to digest meat. That means we need meat, right? The veganism uh, is being pushed as a more spiritual diet. There's a lot of lies being told people that oh, it's a healthy diet. And because people think it's making them more spiritual and they've told it's healthy, when they start to develop these health problems because of nutrient deficiencies, they, they can't make the connection with the vegan diet. It's very hard for them. There was a survey of vegetarians, vegan vegetarians, done a few years ago, and compared to meat eaters, they had more tooth decay, see more mental illness, more visits to the hospital, lower lifestyle, and this is a surprising one, more cancer Wow! people who ate meat. And, of course, when you're being, we're being told that meat causes cancer, it's just not true. Lots of things cause cancer. There's toxins in the whole diet, and you need to clean up the meat you eat, the milk, the grains, the vegetables, fruits, everything we need to clean up. But to just blame it on meat is not correct. Where did your inspiration for eating clean, healthy food come from? I read Dr. Price's book in the 1970s, and I was just starting out with my own family, and uh, I like to cook. I like to cook French foods. We were eating plenty of butter and eggs and all that stuff. And this is when the low-fat message started to come out, and even low-fat for children, which is basically genocide. So I just, uh, I knew this wasn't true, and I was buoyed by Dr. Price's book, which showed how healthy these people were. And what did they want most of all? They wanted fat. They wanted animal fat. They wanted organ meat. Uh, and the milk-drinking ones were drinking raw whole milk and butter. And so I just carried on feeding my family that way, and they were very healthy. So then in, the, um, in 1990, I got the idea, how about a cookbook uh, that puts Dr. Price's findings into a form that's understandable to the public. And so I just started out. I really didn't know what I was doing. But fortunately, I hooked up with Mary Ennig, who was a lipid PhD, so she could help me with the science. 
And kind of the rest is history, really. After the book came out in 1999, we founded the Weston A. Price Foundation. And we've put on a conference and published a journal uh, every year. What's the mission behind your foundation? The mission is to bring nutrient-dense foods to American tables and really teach parents how to have healthy babies. And it's so much fun to get the letters and the emails from parents who are just thrilled with beautiful, healthy, happy babies uh, growing up normally, no health problems, no learning disability, just the way children should be. We almost think that it's normal to have ADHD or autism or whatever, and it's not normal. It's a tragedy, and we parents need to learn. It's up to the parents. They need to know how to feed their children, uh, how to avoid the toxins in the environment, especially vaccinations, and uh, start their children off uh, the gift gift of health. Can you share your top two favorite success stories from people that have written in after reading your book or visiting your site? We heard from a mother who had had a very sick child with all kinds of problems. Then she got on our diet, had a perfectly healthy baby. She was just so thrilled. And so our diet really works. Um, Another one that was very interesting was a child who was suffering from asthma. And asthma is a life-threatening condition. And she got him off uh, pasteurized milk, put him on raw milk, no more asthma. The asthma was gone. And he was much happier. What's a common misconception you think most people get wrong? The most common misconception is that animal fats are bad. And that is relentless from relentless propaganda over the last hundred years by the vegetable oil industry, demonizing their competition. And it's really hard for people to get over this idea that animal fats are bad because they are actually essential for good health. Starting with butter, which is nature's most perfect fat. Uh, lard is a wonderful, stable fat for cooking. Great source of vitamin D. Poultry fat, you know, we're being told to eat skinless chicken breasts, but the fat in the skin and in the chicken and the dark meat and goose fat, duck fat, and the livers of poultry are our best source of vitamin K, which is what we need to build strong bones and healthy teeth. So we need to get these animal fats back in the diet. The other thing is we used to fry everything in tallow, which is uh, really good fat for high-temperature cooking. Tallow is beef fat. And then in 1984, the fast food chains switched to uh, shortening. And now they just use liquid oils, which are even more dangerous than shortening. And so uh, there was a big change in the food supply that year. And uh, I'm not in favor of processed fast foods, but I know that people eat them at least before they weren't eating cancer-causing chemicals. And by the way, the fries tasted so much better when you fried them in tallow. Yeah. So there are a few restaurants now that are going back to using tallow. There's one in New York. We just hope to see more and more of this. It needs to be the consumer demanding this. And the ones who don't change will die out because over several generations, these seed oils and the lack of animal fats cause infertility. I always say you vote with your dollar. So if you're buying these seed oils or these fake butter spreads, you're telling the companies making them to keep making them. Yeah, exactly. So Weston A. Price was a dentist who traveled the world to determine which foods lead to robust health, freedom from tooth decay, and dental deformities. And as you mentioned, ease of reproduction. Do you know why or what caused Dr. Price to be so curious? So Dr. Price was a dentist, and he had a very busy practice in Cleveland, Ohio. And he was just the kind of person who asked questions. And he kept saying, well, how come my patients are so sick? How come they all have decay, um, infection in the mouth? And why am I seeing so many crooked teeth, which he called dental deformities? And this was a time when the world was opening up. He had a nephew who worked for the National Geographic. And one of the most frequent reports that they got was what beautiful teeth these 
isolated people have. Imagine coming into a village and everybody's smiling and coming up to you. They've never seen a European before. And everybody has these most amazing smiles, really straight teeth and no cavities. So he started to travel in 1931. He went to Switzerland, then he went to the Outer Hebrides. Every summer he made a different trip and take photographs and write up the reports of how many cavities these people had. And these were published in peer-reviewed dental journals. And then he put them all together in his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And those pictures from what I've seen online can be really confronting. Yeah, it's just amazing to see. And I came from a family where myself and my siblings, we all needed braces. And my father used to sit at the table and he said, I just don't understand it. Your mom and I have naturally straight teeth and perfect eyesight. How come all you kids need braces and glasses? And my own, none of my four children needed braces, so I was able to reverse this trend to physical degeneration. Uh, they still needed glasses, so we need another generation or two to do that. That's really inspiring. I haven't heard that before. That's the power of real, healthy food yeah. from the earth. And of course, there's a lot of concern now. They call it the epidemic of narrow jaws. And they blamed it on, in Dr. Price's day, they blamed it on race mixing, which he was very quick to dispel. The theory is that it's caused by eating soft food. And I've never heard such a ridiculous theory. First of all, you can tell when a baby's born from the width of the face before it has, before it's eaten anything. And the foods weren't harder in traditional cultures. Drinking milk, eating cheese, they cut the meat up really small so they could chew it. I mean, that's, it's just a silly theory. What are the worst three foods humans can ingest? So number one, absolutely number one, is industrial seed oils. So uh, canola oil, corn oil, cottonseed oils, safflower oil, and the very worst is soybean oil. And you'll be surprised at this. I'm not putting sugar number two, although it's not a good food. But I think number two are the additives and processed foods, especially MSG. And we have a new one now called Cinemix, which is a fake salt taste. These additives affect the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is the seat of impulse control. And it's also the gland that produces acetocin, which is the, the cuddly, loving hormone. It is the master gland. It's actually larger in men than women. The main thing I want to emphasize is the seat of impulse control. And also, the hypothalamus controls weight and appetite. So kids starting out on a lot of processed foods, first of all, they gain weight, even, even if they're eating the same amount of calories as somebody of normal weight. And they don't have impulse control. They can't sit still in school, but at the worst, it means they're violent. And so we have a culture that's more and more lacking in impulse control, more addictive to things. And I really think that's coming from the MSG. And, the, and of course, this, the food industry does not want you to know this. They've done a great job making you think MSG is safe, but it's not safe. It's a very slow but relentless poison. The industry could not function without MSG because the food tastes like cardboard without it. So they have to put it there. And it's really in everything. It's in tomato paste. It's in processed milk. Really high in soy foods. Is it listed as a sneaky ingredient or what would it be found under? It's usually not labeled. It's usually hiding in anything hydrolyzed, the caseinates, uh, extracts, uh, and natural flavors and artificial flavors, but even natural flavors. So number three would be the refined sweeteners, sugar, high fructose corn syrup, which, by the way, they've changed the label on that. They don't call it high fructose corn syrup anymore. They just call it fructose. You see how sneaky these people are. So agave is made the same way that they make high fructose corn syrup, by taking a starch, and that's what's in the root, a starch, and there's this enzymatic conversion which turns it into fructose, free fructose. But the free fructose is higher in agave syrup than it is in high fructose corn syrup. So, yeah. Now, that does not mean we're, we have to be strict and never allow sweet things in our diet. We have a sweet taste in our mouth. 
just like our salt taste, it needs to be satisfied. And traditional cultures had natural sweeteners uh, that were used moderately, and I think that's fine. It sounds like a lot of the way that we use to prepare food has been lost or gone by the wayside, or maybe we just don't have time for it. So what kind of solutions can you help my listeners latch on to? Yeah, and this also is deliberate. There was a deliberate campaign to tell women that it was degrading to cook, that they didn't have time to cook, that they had much more important things to do. And and men, too. It's not something that a smart person would do. We'd let other people do the cooking or you just buy the fast. <clears throat> but we definitely need to get back to cooking and someone has to make time for it it doesn't mean that you have to spend all your time in the kitchen your meals can be simple things like cheese and charcuterie there's a meal right there it's just it's just a question of knowing what to buy and what type of bread to buy Uh, one thing i do say is always make your own salad dressing because the ones you buy are just garbage they're just absolutely garbage and for the same price, you can make a salad dressing with the finest ingredients, and it takes a minute to make. So what are some of your favorite salad dressings? Oh, the easiest is just to put a little, dip your fork in some good mustard and add a vinegar and stir around and then add your olive oil. Another one I like to make is in a jar, I put lemon juice, honey, and some seasonings, and then olive oil. They're so easy to make. Why why would you buy that stuff? And you know that salad dressings are full of MSG, just absolutely full of it. And seed oils. They use the cheapest oils. Just read the ingredients on a bottle of salad dressing. It's the food with the most ingredients. And then you also said it's helpful to know what kind of bread to buy. So what kind of bread should my listeners buy? Okay, so... Grains are a big discussion point today, and a lot of people have trouble with grains or avoiding grains, or they think that grains can't be part of a healthy diet. But Dr. Price found perfectly healthy people eating grains. But the grains were prepared very carefully because, yes, grains are hard to digest and full of irritants and what we call anti-nutrients. Grains are high in phytic acid that blocks mineral assimilation. They have enzyme inhibitors that block digestion. So traditional cultures spent a lot of time preparing their grains and using processes that were basically fermentation. So the way we do that today is with a genuine sourdough bread. And all bread was sourdough until they discovered a brewer's yeast in the late 1800s. Before that, all bread was the slow sourdough process. It was the only way to make bread. But the brewer's yeast allowed them to make bread within in a couple of hours. So everything changed then. We need to go back to these very slow methods, which are basically fermentation, and they get rid of all of the anti-nutrients and irritants. And a perfect example is a study from Italy where they found that people diagnosed with celiac disease could eat uh, wheat without any problem if it was in sourdough bread. So no reaction. Every type of food has a a different criteria. The milk should not be heated at all. Our grains need to be soaked and cooked. So we soak our oatmeal overnight and then we cook it. I was uh, at a restaurant recently and the person next to me took raw oats and put soy milk on them. And what would you do in that? Did you say anything or not? I didn't say anything, but I thought this poor man's going to have a lot of digestive problems. Oh, that's tough. I feel like you probably feel like I do when you're going through the grocery store and you yeah. see people buying the butter spreads or oh, the salad dressings and you're like, oh, can I just talk to them? Nutrition is such a sensitive subject and people get very offended. But we do have the Weston A. Price Foundation does publish these little flyers, trifolds. And if I'd had my soy trifold, I would have just all right this is a little reminder to let you know we're a little past halfway in the show today and i really appreciate sally's advice of how nutrition 
is such a sensitive subject. So if this is new for you, if these are some ideas that you don't agree with, I would just encourage you to be open-minded. Do some research on your own. I highly recommend researching Dr. Asim Malhorda, who is a renowned British cardiologist known for promoting butter and red meat for a healthy lifestyle. He's actually put his job on the line and has received global backlash for his views. However, he's written many peer-reviewed published medical documents stating the health benefits from consuming saturated fat. And if you have time, listen to Joe Rogan interview him on episode 1979. Also, I would highly recommend a book called On Eating Meat by Matthew Evans. He's a farmer dedicated to ensuring we're consuming grass-fed, pasture-raised beef and free-range chickens and pigs. And he describes in beautiful details how majestic animals are. I personally feel the same way petting a cow as I do a horse. And Evans is an advocate for treating animals better all the way from birth to the slaughterhouse. He also sheds some light on the indirect harm of growing fruits and vegetables. For example, at one Tasmanian farm in Australia, which produces 400 tons of peas per season, they have to kill 800 to 1,000 opossums and 500 wallabies every year, along with a few ducks, as well as many rodents. While I do understand this is a confronting episode, I wanted to leave you with some food for thought. Let's get back to the show. What are your thoughts on beans and legumes? So beans and legumes are in lots of traditional diets and sometimes in pretty high amounts. So the beans and legumes are the healthiest of the seed foods. They're higher in protein than others. But again, they need very careful preparation, very long soaking. Typically, they're soaked for 24 to 48 hours and you throw out the water and replenish the water and then you cook them for a long time sometimes you add something a little acidic sometimes you add something a little alkaline depending on the bean but they need to be really soft before you eat them if they're hard or crunchy then you're going to have a tummy ache pretty soon after tell me about the fat of juicing and how other cultures don't juice their fruit and vegetables Juicing. Oh, juicing. Yeah. Our ancestors didn't have juicers. They did make, um, and they didn't have refrigerators. Okay. Uh, and they probably didn't have kale and most of them didn't have bananas. And uh, to have all these fruits and vegetables at one time, not what traditional people did. So they did two things with uh, fruits and vegetables. Largely, they uh, either made a kind of beer with them, fermented, lacto-fermented beer. <clears throat> Or they cook them, and that's fine. Now, your salad vegetables, very tender. They've been bred to be tender. That's fine. You can eat those raw. Most people can eat them raw, not everybody. But things like kale and spinach and mustard greens, these are very, very difficult to digest. They're high in oxalic acid, which can cause kidney stones, and they need to be cooked, and cooked a long time. I want to touch on the oxalates because I feel like not a lot of people know what these are. So can you walk me through why kale and collard greens and mustard greens are hard to digest? So oxalates are a compound. They attach to calcium is what they do. And a lot of people just eliminate them, but they can also cause kidney stones where in the body. Uh, Dr. William Shaw tells the story of someone who just eaten McDonald's all his life and Besides, he wants to have, be healthy. He starts eating spinach salad, and the next thing he knows, he's got a kidney stone. I've heard you can decrease oxalates by cooking the vegetable. Is this true? They break down. Uh, maybe not completely, but they mostly break down. Also, if you have good gut flora, the gut flora break them down. Uh, but I just wouldn't push it. And the idea of eating kale smoothies and kale chips, just thinking about Consuming something like this makes me nauseous. <laughs> and by the way, kale is one of the dirty dozen. It's one of the most highest in pesticides. I rarely eat kale. <clears throat> and if I do eat spinach, I always heat it up. I'll cook it with butter. Yeah, cook it, steam it till it's really wilted. Then you press the juice out of it because that's where all these anti-nutrients have gone. And then you put butter and salt on it. 
so smart. I'm so glad my listeners are hearing this from someone else besides someone me. Else, not you. <laughs> so now can you walk me through the importance of salt? Yes. Yes. So salt is essential for life. And one of the ways that we are a lot luckier and more, not healthier, but one of the ways we're much more blessed than traditional cultures is that we are assured of salt everywhere. It's inexpensive. Salt was really hard to obtain in many places in the ancient world. So why do we need salt? Salt is sodium chloride. We need the chloride portion of salt to make hydrochloric acid for digesting meat. And we need the sodium portion of salt to make enzymes that break down carbohydrates. So we need salt for digestion, first and foremost. And I like to say the creator didn't put a salt taste in our mouths to torture us, but because we need salt. Salt is critical for neurological function and for the creation of glial cells in the brain. Babies need salt. Nursing moms and pregnant women need salt. And, of course, our government tells you to withhold salt from babies. That is just such terrible advice. It's just essential for life. So, and try going without it for a while. We have a friend who was on a low-salt diet and ended up in the hospital. And it took them four days to bring his sodium levels up. You can't just do it right away. You have to do it slowly. We do recommend unrefined salt, which has all the trace minerals in it. And see, when they refine the salt, they, uh, they add aluminum to keep it from caking. So you want unrefined salt. That was going to be my next question. If you could tell me the difference between table salt and sea salt. I think sea salt is the wrong word because a lot of things being sold as sea salt comes from the sea, but it's been refined. Oh. So we say if it's white, it's refined. If it's gray, pink, or beige, it's unrefined. So <laughs> I think we shouldn't be using the word sea salt, although I did use it in nourishing traditions, but I'm older and wiser now. So I think we should call it just unrefined salt. That's really helpful to know. Do you have a favorite source or brand from your salt? We use something called Celtic sea salt. Uh, we make cheese on our farm. We use that. We get it in a 22-pound bag. That, that's what I would recommend. What are your top two favorite recipes you'd like to see more households making? I'm a big soup maker. I make a lot of broth and make soup. One soup that everyone likes is called Southwest Chicken Soup. And it's like chili, but like a thin chili with chicken in it. And that's a real favorite. We have it with cheese and avocados. I have a shrimp recipe that I like, which I make with a lot of butter and herbs. And then I put it on toast. Delicious. One of my favorites from the book is Welsh rarebit, which is a cheese cheese sauce with egg yolk and couldn't get more cholesterol in one dish than Welsh rarebit. <laughs> Since you mentioned shrimp, can you walk me through the benefits or the concerns of wild caught versus farm raised? Yes, you don't want farm raised seafood. It is they say that farm raised salmon is actually the dirtiest food that you could eat. It's highly polluted these pens that the fish are in they feed them soybean oil they feed them uh, corn um, just just disgusting so you do want to get wild fish and that's not easy especially fresh a wild salmon is always previously frozen markets we are very lucky we live near the chesapeake bay and we, we can really get fresh fish that's been caught out in the bay and we can get oysters and not shrimp or mussels, but we can get oysters and crab. So Bay is famous for the crab. Are you working on any upcoming projects you're excited about? Well, one thing we're doing at the foundation is uh, we're trying to get a project going to create an online class, an online course. But we've had delays. I now write for the Epic Times, and I have a blog. Uh, for the last few years, I've been doing a blog. So, And that blog where people can find you is called nourishingtraditions.com, correct? That's, that's correct, yeah. It's really fun for me because no holds barred. I have to be very careful for the Epic Times. They make me have references for everything, and I have to tone it down a little for them. But on my blog, I can really say what I want to say. 
I were just about to post an article called Dr. Weston Price on the eugenics movement. So this idea that we're going to create designer babies, we're going to pick the best genetics, now who's making that decision? There's not, no talk of nutrition when they talk about eugenics today. And what, when you look at Dr. Price's photographs, what you realize is that everyone has perfect genetics. We all have the genetics. We're perfect form, perfect health, good minds. All of us, 100% of the people in this world have the potential for perfect, I have perfect genetics. It's just whether these genetics are, have their optimal expression. What's one of your favorite blog posts that you would love my listeners to read? Let's see. I just did one on vitamin A, which I thought was very interesting. <laughs> and it was a study from 1925 where they looked at what happened when you deprived animals of vitamin A. And they developed all kinds of problems. But what was interesting is they developed the problems first, and after that came the inflammation and infection. So everyone's saying that inflammation is the cause of all these diseases. No, inflammation is probably the therapy for these deficiencies. For example, if you uh, twist your ankle, it will become inflamed. The inflammation did not cause a twisted ankle. The inflammation is a response to the injured tissue and actually is the therapy for these tissues because it makes them, it wraps them up and makes it hard to move your ankle because you're not supposed to move your ankle when you've injured it. You're supposed to keep it still. And same with anything like that. Inflammation is the response to injured or dying tissue. And is this blog post saying that vitamin A will help ease inflammation? Yes, yes. So just trying to treat the inflammation is not going to work. You need to create and treat the vitamin A deficiency. A lot of the work that I've been doing with Dr. Cowan, how germs don't cause disease. There's no such thing as viruses. Um, inflammation doesn't cause disease. What causes disease is toxins and deficiencies. Injury oh. also. Yeah, injury, toxins, and deficiencies. And the inflammation and the appearance of bacteria, these are secondary. Dr. Cowan is one of my favorite physicians. I've read his books. I follow him. I buy all his green powders. But for people that don't know, can you walk us through his role at the foundation? Yes. Uh, Tom is our vice president. He was one of our founding members. I am so grateful for his presence in the foundation. And uh, he's like our moral compass. When there's something that I don't know the answer to, I always go to Tom. Or when there's some, if there's some direction I think the foundation should go, I always ask Tom first. I think he, I've never known anyone who can think as clearly as Tom does. I will link show notes to him and his yes, book, yes. as well as you, your books, as well as the foundation. I did want to drive home and make sure people know that they can support your foundation, the Weston A. Price Foundation, by becoming a member. Can you yes, walk us through you. what members yes. get? Yes. So members get a quarterly journal. All this information is on our website. We're not trying to keep anyone out from this information. But people really like the journal. Um, we get so much good feedback. So you get the quarterly journal. You'll get the updated shopping guide every year. We have a members-only, I think it's a Facebook group, that's fun for people. The basic thing you're doing is supporting our work. One of my favorite features about your website is that there are local chapters for people. And that's something that I think I want all my listeners to know is that you don't have to be alone. There are people around the nation, I'm sure around the world, who help support this. Yeah, we have over 400 chapters. Uh, so if you're new to this, let's just say you want some try raw milk, you would call your local chapter. They'll tell you where you can get it. We also have our website, realmilk.com, which gets between a half and three quarters of a million new visitors on the milk finding site every year. So, yeah. And then you also have the Wise Tradition Conference, which is this year in Kansas City, Missouri, October 20th through the 22nd. Can you let listeners know and what to expect at this conference? 
Uh, first of all, we showcase the foods. Five wonderful meals are included in the conference fee. And we, if you're new to this way of eating, we'll show you that it's really a fun way to eat. Very delicious. Our keynote speaker at the banquet this year is Naomi Wolf. We're very excited about having her. She's a superstar, wonderful speaker. But she's the one who got hold of the Pfizer documents and had them analyzed. She had 3,500 volunteers to help her analyze these documents. And what they found is absolutely shocking. We're dying. Young people were having myocarditis and dying of heart attacks. Women were losing their babies. It was absolutely shocking what they found. Her speech will be a real wake-up call. What haven't I asked you that you'd like my listeners to know? Let's see. We talked about soy, salt. We should talk about broth. One of the things that we have done is popularize bone broth, uh, which is made from the bones and the cartilage, and we use chicken heads, chicken feet. You know. And basically, broth is melted collagen, and that's what makes it gelatinous when it's cold. And we need collagen as much as we need muscle meat. We actually have more collagen protein in our bodies than muscle protein. So when you eat meat, you're nourishing your muscles. And when you eat the broth, you are nourishing your collagen, okay? And we, um, the beauty of broth is it's actually the basis of gourmet cooking because you can make gravies and sauces, wonderful soups and stews with it. So we've got everybody getting stockpots and making broth with their chicken bones. I personally make bone broth, but I would love for my listeners who have never made bone broth to know how you make it, what they need, what's the process, how long does it take? Okay. So I save the bones. When we eat chicken, I save the bones. And it usually is two carcasses, plus I either get chicken feet and heads or a pig's foot. And I... Fill a slow cooker to the brim with bones, okay? You really need a lot of bones. And then you fill it with water. I put an onion in, some seasonings, and a splash of vinegar. And I cook that overnight on very slow. I ladle all the broth out, and that's my sort of very broth. And then I add, and which I use for sauces and things. And then I add water again, fill it up, and do a second cooking. And that's my broth for soups. You will make two batches with one set, set of bones. Yes. Uh, and, okay, so you take that out and you've got all these bones left. Uh, I pick the meat off the bones and we use that in salads and tacos, enchiladas, things like that. And Yum. I want to come to your house for dinner. <laughs> Some people actually crush up the bones and add them to their soup. But we have a farm, so the bones go to the pigs especially our pregnant pigs and our nursing pigs because it's good calcium for them. And your farm, do you practice regenerative farming? Are you moving around the yes, farm? We move our animals every day. Uh, we move our chickens and our cows every day. The pigs we move every few months. Uh, and we've built about eight inches of topsoil since we've been here. So we had no topsoil when we started. So we do raw milk labeled as pet food, raw cheese, raw cream labeled as pet food, and we do chicken, eggs, turkey, and pork. And the pork is delicious. And we don't use any soy on the farm or any corn. Beautiful. Are there any last words, anything that you want to drive home from our conversation today? I think if you're starting out, how do I start? The first thing we say is get your fats right. So start using butter, uh, cooking in lard, and making your own salad dressing with olive oil. That's what I would say is absolutely number one. I think what you'll find is that when you get your fats right, your cravings for things that maybe aren't so good for you, like sugar and caffeine, will go down. I've heard you mention that you no longer drink coffee. Can you explain why? Oh, uh, years ago, I had a holistic physician I went to see because I was having a lot of fatigue and uh, he said, and allergies, and he said, well, I can't help you unless you stop drinking coffee. So I did. It was the hardest thing I ever did, but um, what happened was amazing. My allergies got much less, but I had more energy. 
And suddenly, instead of that drop in the middle of the morning and having no energy after dinner, I had energy all day long, just steady energy. So I got a lot more done. And what coffee does is stimulate the adrenal glands to produce adrenaline and cortisol, and your adrenal glands eventually give out. And that's when you really start to have health problems. I think that's very interesting to hear because there's such a trend for coffee and different ways to drink coffee. I drink it, but I didn't drink it for 32 years of my life. And sometimes I go back and forth wondering, should I give this up? Yes, you should. So coffee, tea, chocolate, they're all stimulants and they're all addictive. How can people expect to feel once they start eating nutrient-dense food? They'll feel more satisfied. They'll have much more even blood sugar and they won't be tempted in the middle of the morning or afternoon to have a snack, go to the vending machine. I think that's the first thing that happens. Well, if people are saving money, even just on a daily Snickers bar, I feel like this conversation was worth it for them. No, when you talk about what you spend on food and it's more expensive to eat this way, there's no question. But you have to add your medical costs too. So in 1900, we were spending 17% of our budget on food, you know, 3% on medical costs. Today, we spend about 7% of our budget on food, but 10% on medical costs. So works out the same. Pretty eye-opening. Yeah. Well, Sally, I greatly appreciate you joining the show today. I'll link everything in the show notes where people can find you. Make sure they jump on board for the conference. And I just wanted to yeah, thank you for thank your you. time again. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Bye, Sally. Bye-bye. This podcast is presented for educational and exploratory purposes only. I am not a doctor and do not intend to diagnose, treat, or cure any illness or disease mentioned on this podcast. I am not a licensed healthcare practitioner and all topics discussed on this show should not and do not replace medical advice. Published content is not intended for the use of treating any illnesses. Those responsible for this show disclaim any responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information presented by Ashley Daly or my my guests. Always consult with your healthcare provider before using any products referenced. This podcast may contain paid endorsements for products or services.